learning from the past is essential to holding fast in Christ in the present day. Let us pray. God, our Father, as we reflect this morning on the past, as we look back at that Exodus generation, as we marvel at your power and grace and mercy in bringing them through the waters of the Red Sea on dry ground and leading them to Mount Sinai and then to the edge of the Promised Land. Father, remind us of our own frailty as that generation rebelled against you. Remind us of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. And we ask and pray these things in his name. Amen. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3 as we look at verses 7 through 19 as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Will, re will we repeat the failures of the past? This is the central question that this text poses for us today. I have learned more from my and other people's failures than I have from my and other people's successes. And one of the ways I can come alongside younger pastors, for example, is to provide learning opportunities for them as, as I am open about my failures as well as my successes as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a believer. And the same is true for all of those of us who are in the older generation, that we might be willing to share our past successes and to be open to share our failures, that we might come alongside the younger generation, that they might learn from us, even saying, don't do what I did. 
This learning opportunity is a two-way street, though. Those in the younger generation need to realize their need to learn from those in the older generation and to have a sense of humility, understanding that they don't have it all together and that there are learning opportunities that abound in being open for that older saint to come alongside and to say, hey, don't do what I did. Learning from the past is essential to holding fast in Christ in the present. And so the the author of Hebrews has already shown us Jesus' supremacy to the Old Testament Scriptures. He has declared that Jesus is greater than the angels and greater than Moses. And now in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, he turns to warn believers not to follow the negative example of that past generation that followed Moses. And the central question for us, again, will we learn from the past? And so our text today points us to a rebellious people. It also points us to a warned people. And thirdly, a redeemed people. So on the sermon outline on page 7, I've flipped numbers 2 and 3. But first, let's look at the rebellious people in this text. Those who are, were of that Exodus generation, whose hearts became hardened in unbelief, and they rebelled against the living God. So look at Hebrews 3 and verse 16. For, those, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And so the author, to support his warning in this text, uses that Exodus generation as a negative example. Don't do what they did. Learn from the past. And the support that he gives is from Psalm 95, the first part of which is our call to worship today. And indeed, the psalmist begins that psalm by calling God's people to worship. But then, in verse 7, it takes a sharp turn and actually gives a warning. And why does the psalmist give a warning as he calls God's people to worship? The point of the psalmist is to show that the, that the person who comes to worship God must have a believing heart that leads to an obedient life in order for his worship to be acceptable to God. And the author of Hebrews uses Psalm 95 to show that that Exodus generation were epic failures in worshiping God, in following God, in having a believing heart that led to an obedient life. Quite the opposite. They had a hard heart of unbelief that led to rebellion against the living God. And Psalm 95, the the backdrop to Psalm 95 are two particular events in the life 
of the nation of Israel. First, Psalm 95 records in verse 7, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. And so the backdrop to what the psalmist says in verse 7 is this. Shortly after God's miraculous deliverance of Israel from Egypt, both in the plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh and Egypt, as well as that miraculous event of leading the people of Israel and providing a way through the Red Sea on dry ground. Shortly after that, the people came to Rephidim, and there they camped. Carl read about this in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. But the people, verse 3 of Exodus 17, but the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. They grumbled. They complained. Just after God parted the Red Seas, which, by the way, would have gotten my attention, and after they passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, and then they looked back and they saw Pharaoh's army completely destroyed, they get to Rephidim, they experience thirst. They complain and grumble against Moses. They complain and grumble against God. Moses cried out to God and answered, and God answered, commanding Moses to strike the rock at Horeb. God provided water for the people. Moses ended the, this account in Exodus 17, in verse 7. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Unbelief. The author of Hebrews shows from Psalm 95, the people's hearts were hardened. And they doubted God. They did not believe God. Their hearts overflowed with unbelief. Second, Psalm 95 recounts yet another event in Israel's history. Look at Psalm 95, verses 10 through 11, if you have turned there in your Bibles. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's how Psalm 95 ends. After a year at the foot of Mount Sinai, after grumbling at Rephidim, after God provided water from the rock at Horeb, after God gave them the law there at Mount Sinai, within a year they found themselves, God led them to the edge of the promised land, the land that is my rest, God's rest, the place promised to Israel that he calls my rest. Numbers 14 gives the account of the spies being sent out, and they came back with a bad report. They said, there's no way we can take this land. Joshua and Caleb, two of the spies, said, oh no, trust the Lord, let's go take it. It's ours. 
but the people voted on the side of the bad report and they rebelled against God. They refused to trust God. They disobeyed. They did not enter my rest. Numbers 14 verses 21 through 23 records the outcome of their disobedience. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. In Psalm 95 and verse 11, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The writer of Hebrews shows from Psalm 95 that that Exodus generation suffered the loss of not entering God's promised rest due to their hard-hearted unbelief. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation died out. Look with me at verses 16 through 19 of Hebrews chapter 3. We'll go down to the end of the passage. That generation, that Exodus generation, heard God's promises and his commands. They saw God's mighty hands do all sorts of miracles, not the least of which are the plagues in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. Yet they rebelled. It was that generation that provoked God for 40 years. That generation suffered temporal judgment in dying out in the wilderness during that 40-year period. They did not enter his rest. That generation did not enter God's rest because of the sin of unbelief in their hearts. And the author here gives the unvarnished truth about Israel's hard-heartedness leading to unbelief and outright rebellion against God, the very God who had redeemed them in such miraculous ways. He reveals the sad truth so that subsequent generations, the generations that generation to which the author of Hebrews was writing, those Jewish Christians who are facing persecution, even our generation today, subsequent generations might hear this warning that they may learn from this epic failure of the Exodus generation. Learning from the past is essential to holding fast to Christ in the present. So that's the story. That's the backdrop to what the author of Hebrews is pointing to from Psalm 9 here, a rebellious people. And then he turns to a warning, the second point for today. The author warns believers not to harden their hearts in unbelief towards Jesus and thus reject him, rebel against him as did that exodus generation reject and rebel against God if the consequences of rejecting 
God and Moses' day were great, how much greater are the consequences of rejecting the one who is greater than Moses, Jesus? You know, we can try and erase the past. We can attempt to rewrite the past. Today we're told we need to reimagine the past. Still not exactly sure what that means. But at the end of the day, the past is the past. It cannot be changed. I like to change many things about my past, but I can't. But one thing I can do is to be open about my past successes and failures to come alongside others that they might learn from my mistakes, that they might be warned not to do some of the things that I have done. The Exodus generations rebelled. They paid a hefty price for it. They died in the wilderness. And the author uses their failures to come alongside those Jewish Christians in his day that were facing persecution, to come alongside us in our day as a negative example. Don't do what they did. So the, the, the author's warning echoes Psalm 95, and Psalms 95 points to the problem with the Exodus generation. By the way, it's the same problem that we face today, often in our walk with the Lord. I just want to read portions, uh, just bits and pieces of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, to see if you pick up on a theme here. Do not harden your hearts, verse 8. They always go astray in their hearts, verse 10. An evil, unbelieving heart, verse 12. Do not harden your hearts, verse 15. Unable to enter because of unbelief, verse 19. You get this picture here? It's very clear that the problem is not rebellion. The problem is a hard heart of unbelief. That's the problem. And the result of such a heart is to fall away from the living God, verse 12. And in verses 11 and 19, and not enter my, that is God's rest. The rebellious Exodus generation did not enter the promised land. But the author wants us to understand that the greater loss will be anyone who falls away from Jesus. They will not enter that eternal rest. So I want us to pause for just a moment and ask the question, how should we understand the author's use of falling away? Let me just say at the outside, at the outset, a true believer, someone who is truly united to Christ in saving faith, will not fall away. We believe in once saved, always saved. But there are examples of people who do fall away, the Exodus generation. And so what does it mean to fall away? We need to remember that the author is writing to these Jewish Christians who are contemplating falling away. They are contemplating rejecting Christ and reverting back to Judaism to avoid suffering, to avoid that that persecution. 
and the, and the writer reminds them of God's deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt to live free in the promised land, his rest, and what happened, the people complained. And this really, in my view, gets to the very heart of what it means to fall away. Going back to, the, back to Exodus 17 and verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? In other words, that Exodus generation's hearts had turned back to Egypt. They desired to go back to Egypt, to live under slavery. Can you imagine that? And that shows us the dynamic of falling away. And the author exhorts his brothers and sisters who are contemplating falling away, who are considering rebelling against God by reverting back to Judaism to learn the lesson of the Exodus generation and not harden their hearts in unbelief leading to falling back into Judaism. Falling away is rejecting God's good gifts to embrace life, who you were before God worked in your life. Does that make sense? It is a, it is a person who views himself as saved saying, I no, I no longer want to live under God's grace. I want to go back and live in my, under my own devices. The lesson for us today is this. Do not become hardened in unbelief and risk falling away, rather hold fast in Christ. The author is seeking to encourage those Jewish Christians and encourage us to hold fast in Christ. The author's warning represents Scripture's teaching about the deceitfulness of sin. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 4, 20 through 24, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We see in both of these passages the problem of the heart, the deceitfulness of the heart. Who can understand it? And the author warns believers not to follow that Exodus generation's example. They gave in to those deceitful desires of their own heart and rebelled against God. But the author gives us a remedy. In fact, he kind of doubles down on this remedy. He gives us two things that we should do, must do, in order to hold fast in Christ. 
Look at verse 12. The author commands, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from God. In other words, this command is to the individual. It's a personal command to me, to you, individually, that, that we are to take care. In other words, we are to be vigilant of our heart, what's going on in our heart. We are to be on guard against those deceitful desires of our heart. We are to watch carefully over our heart, remembering the problem of the human heart, sinful, deceitful, who can understand it, and then recalling what Proverbs tells us, that the heart is the wellspring of living. What is in our heart will come out in how we live. And if it's sin and deceitfulness, it will be rebellion against God. Guided by Scripture, we are to learn from the past that we would not repeat it, especially with regards to the heart. But then he commands something else in verse 13. Look at the text. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says, first, each, each individual is to take care that they're vigilant, vigilant and watchful over their hearts. And then he says, but don't stop there. Come together. Exhort one another. To exhort, this is the best, one of the best ways I have come to understand what it means to exhort. And it's this, to come alongside someone else. To encourage them to walk after the Lord. I love that imagery, to come alongside, to come together, to exhort one another. The remedy for not repeating the failure of the Exodus generation is both personal, individual, and corporate. We are to take care of our own hearts so that we are not hardened in unbelief, and we are to come alongside of one another, encouraging one another with regards to both the deceitfulness of sin and to encourage one another to hold fast in Christ. Rick Phillips says this, and I really appreciated appreciate what he says in his commentary. I quote, I cannot even trust my heart, the Bible says. My desires are not trustworthy. And the wise man comes to realize that this is so, that the things we long for are often foolish and vain, if not outright idolatrous. And therefore, he seeks the scrutiny and exhortation of brothers and sisters in the Lord. The author warns believers not to repeat the failures of the past. And he gives us a double remedy to help us. It is each one of us to take care of our own hearts. And then, as a church community, that we would come alongside one another to learn from the past, to hold fast 
in Christ in the present. And now thirdly, as we come to the third and last point, this text brings us to consider the blessings of being the redeemed people of God, the blessings of being saved into a community of believers that we might seek together not to repeat the failures of the past in order that we might hold fast in Christ in the present. The author emphasizes the corporate nature of the people of God by saying, for we have come to share in Christ. We, the church, to share in Christ. The reason to heed this warning, both individually and corporately, is rooted in our union to Christ and our union and communion with one another in the body of Christ. And so in verse 14, you'll see yet another conditional statement like the one in verse 6 that we considered last week. The author is not saying we share in Christ because we're obedient. The author is saying that those who share in Christ by grace through faith are those who will persevere in holding fast in Christ to the end. Now think about that. This is a, this is a promise. That if indeed, if we are truly united to Christ in saving faith, we will persevere. And I want us to be encouraged with that today. Yes, in light of this, the deceit, the continuing deceitfulness of our own hearts. Have you experienced that as a believer? Just how those deceitful desires still percolate up? Even in light of that, even in light of the epic failure of the people of God in that Exodus generation, if we are truly united to Christ in saving faith, we will hold fast in Christ for the rest of eternity. We will persevere. I just find that incredibly encouraging. Thus, as redeemed people who share in Christ, we have a common mission and a common vision, and that is to hold fast in Christ today. We are to strive to, to take care of our own hearts personally and exhort one another corporately not to repeat the failure of the Exodus generation and becoming hard-hearted in unbelief, leading to disobedience and rebellion. And so we, we follow God's word through the psalmist together as a community, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He is... He is declaring that individually and corporately to us. Individually, that, that we would double down on not having a hard heart. Corporately, that we would come alongside one another. That we would not have a hard heart as a church, as a community. So here's the first takeaway today. Not the only takeaway, but the first takeaway. We share 
in Christ. And I want to emphasize, we share. We, community, share together. We are together in community. We need one another in order to hold fast in Christ in the present day. We must not think we can stand alone in not repeating the errors of the past. Isolation results in yet another epic failure in the Christian life. I'm an independent kind of a guy, and I always struggle to express the fact that I need others. I'm just so self-sufficient. That's what I think. My tendency is isolation. And that results in epic failures. The Word of God tells me, Mr. Self-Sufficient, Mr. Independent, Mr. I don't need your help, that I'm not self-sufficient, I'm in community, I'm not independent, and by the way, I cannot even understand my own heart. I need help. I need you. There are some of us that just want to be around people all the time. The question is, do you want to be around this people? The ones that God caused to come alongside you in order that you might hold fast in Christ today and not repeat the failures of the past. What am I saying is that we need one another. It is a blessing. And may God grow us as a church community. May God give us a desire to be in community. May God give us the boldness to exhort one another in community. May we honor him as the representation of his people in this particular community that expresses his church. As, as I began, I have a responsibility to younger pastors to come alongside them and to be open about my successes and failures as a father, as a husband, very few failures as a husband, right, Renee? Yeah, she's shaking her head. <laughs> it's an epic lie, by the way, um, but all for fun. And my figures as a pastor, that they might learn from me in order that they might hold fast in Christ in the present. We have an older generation represented here at Covenant. We have, and I just heard recently what a delight it is to see the generations represented here at Covenant. That's a real plus for our church. We've got people from all different generations here. That's fantastic. But where the older generation, we need to come alongside one another. And we may need a younger generation to come alongside us to help us see some things. But what a privilege it is for our older saints to be able to come alongside our younger saints and to say, hey, this is what I did. Don't do that. <laughs> but the younger have to be open to that, right? 
And so I think this sense of community just comes through Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Take care of yourself, exhort one another not to repeat the failures of the past. But, but there's uh, one more takeaway. Uh, we share in Christ, and I just want to focus on the, the, the in Christ, and then we'll conclude our, our, our time today. We are united to Christ in saving faith by grace through faith. We are his redeemed people by grace through faith. All that God did in, that ex, in the lives of that Exodus generation finds its fulfillment in Christ. So let me show you this. In Luke chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus' death is spoken of as an exodus. Jesus' saving work is the greater exodus, delivering God's people from bondage to sin, to Satan, and death. As the people of God prepared for that exodus deliverance, they celebrated the Passover. And Jesus is the true Passover. He's the true spotless lamb who sacrificed himself for God's, for the people of God's deliverance. As Jesus was brought through the wilderness after his baptism to be tempted by Satan, he represented the faithful Israelite. Unlike the faithless Exodus generation, Jesus was faithful in those 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. Jesus' baptism, the, bapti the Christian baptism, is the true water ordeal that is anticipated by that those waters of the Red Sea being separated. And one of the things we need to see in the sacrament of baptism, it is both blessing and promise and judgment. For as the blessing of God parting those waters and the Israelites walking and being delivered through those waters on dry ground, what happened to Pharaoh's army? Judgment when they passed through the water came. So baptism is both a sign of blessing and judgment for those who reject and have hard hearts and rebel against God. The true rock, that rock at Horeb, where the people complained that Moses struck with that staff where he did the miracles on the Nile River back in Jesus. That rock in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is likened to Christ. Christ is that rock who is the true provision for God's people. Christ is that manna who is the true provision of bread for God's people. And for those who are under Christ, for those who hold fast in him, Christ leads them to God's rest, heaven itself. Do you see what the author is doing here in Hebrews chapter 3? He is causing the people to look to see one greater than Moses, a deliverance greater than that in the time of Moses, a rock 
with fresher, life-giving water than the rock at Horeb. Bread, manna, that will completely satisfy, unlike the manna in the wilderness. Remember what Jesus said in John 4 to the woman at the well. You come here to draw water, but I offer you living water. The author tells his original audience then, and he tells us today, Jesus is greater. Jesus is the ultimate exodus. Jesus' work completely fulfills the promises of God. Do not harden your hearts in unbelief toward him and fall away, but hold fast in him. Learn from the lesson of that exodus generation that rebelled against God out of a hard, unbelieving heart. Do not repeat that fatal failure. Take care of your heart and come alongside one another to learn from the past in order to hold fast in Christ in the present. Let us pray. Father, I would pray that you would remind us of the the deceitfulness even of our hearts, those of us who are redeemed. Father, we experience the, the residual effects of that old man all too often. Give us courage, Lord, to take care of our own heart, to be vigilant and watchful. And Father, I pray that you might further all of us here at this church in exhorting one another, coming alongside one another, that we might hold fast in Christ today. Father, thank you for the blessings of a full and lasting redemption. Thank you for the blessings of a community of saints of which we are a part. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. May we ever hold fast to him. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.